Welcome to Grit, Real Stories of Recovery. My name is Paul, and I'll be your host. Please note that this podcast is uncensored and may contain material that is not suitable for all audiences. We're here today with Keith Hayes, the Director of Recovery at 5280 High School. How you doing today, man? I'm blessed, Paul. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing your story, and hopefully some folks hear a message that might help them, loved ones, or friends find a solution to addiction. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing, your life, your childhood, your neighborhood, school, that sort of thing. All right. Um, So I grew up here in Denver, Colorado. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and it was really important to my mom to get me out of the community of St. Louis. So she thought moving to Denver that I would be just a little bit safer, right? And uh, I grew up in a single family home. We weren't rich. We weren't poor. Um, My mom worked several jobs to keep a roof over my head, clothes on my back, and food on the table. And she truly did the best that she could. But that also allowed a lot of time for her to be out of the house. I'm an only child. um, So it also allowed me to get in some trouble, too. I grew up in the east side of Denver, but I actually went to elementary school and junior high in Lakewood, Colorado. And at that time in the 80s, uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, people of color who went to those schools. So I I was pretty much the only black kid at my school in elementary school and junior high. What was it like growing up without a dad? Did you feel different than the other kids? Did did you kind of wonder why your dad wasn't around? I had a deep and effective resentment at my dad. Um, I really wanted my dad in my life. And it was hard to see these other kids who had, you know, both parents at home and and they had all these great resources and all these things that I just didn't have. And it was a lot of jealousy around that. And I really had a lot of resentment in my dad because all I really wanted was a man's love. Yeah, I hear that, man. What was school like? What was your peer group like? Were you into sports? Did you have hobbies? What what did that look like, particularly in high school? So I was an athlete all throughout school. I ran track in elementary, junior high, and high school. Also played football and basketball and baseball. So I was a star athlete growing up, and I was respected by my peers for my athleticism. So, you know, everybody wanted to pick me first on all the teams, and I was that dude, right? And that was always fun, and that was cool. Um, School was a challenge for me, and it was a challenge because it meant a lot to me to fit in. I wanted to be respected by my peers, and I wanted to be everybody to be able to relate with me. And I found myself being a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in my life. Um, I would go to school in Lakewood, and I would act a certain type of way. I would talk a certain type of way, right, because I wanted to be accepted by my white friends. And then I would go back home in my black community, and I would act a whole different way with them. I would act like I wasn't smart. I would act like I didn't know the answers because I wanted to be accepted by them. And it's not cool to be smart in the black community. It's just not, it's not a thing. Um, And I didn't get that same respect. So it was important that I went to any lengths to just act how I needed to act to be accepted by the people who I wanted to be accepted by. Because it's all about feeling a part of. Yep, I think you've articulated what every young person feels, right? I have a need to fit in. I have a need to belong, right? And 
we will do whatever we got to do to get there. So how old were you and what did it look like when you first started using? So I want to probably say I had my first drink when I was probably around 12 years old. The interesting thing is that my mom gave me my first drink. You know, her thing was, is, hey, if you're going to try drinking, I'd rather you do it with me and be in a safe environment. And I always grew up like not comfortable in my own skin. And um, when I had that first drink, I immediately felt good. I felt good about myself. So talk about that. What do you mean you felt good? It gave me ease and comfort, right? It gave me ease and comfort. I felt like I could articulate myself how I wanted to. It kind of got me out of my shell a little bit more. I was willing to be more open with people, you know. So, yeah, I liked it a lot. How did it make you feel physically? Oh, so, yeah, you know, I drank. I threw up. I had a hangover the next day. And at the end of the day, I was like, oh, I feel better. Let's do this again. Right. And and that was my experience, too, is I got to do that again. Mm-hmm. Right. And for those of us who are addicts, we don't recognize that is the first sign and we get it early, early on. So tell me about some of the experiences in using. Did it help you bond with your peer group? Did you do some crazy shit? What did that look like? Yeah. So my disease was very progressive. Um, I really kind of started out smoking a little weed and drinking and it was just all about laughing and joking and partying and having a good time, right? In high school, we just won our football game, right? We go out with the fellas. We go to, uh, back in my day, we had little youth club nights we could go to and we would go out and we would party and we would drink and we would smoke all night. And it was a bonding experience, you know, and, um, it just made me feel like I belonged We're drinking, we're partying, we're laughing, we're having a good time, we're hanging out with girls. This is the life. And it just seemed like it was the normal thing to do. It does, man. And, you know, being a part of was so, so important to me. And wanting to feel different, different than how I felt was was extremely important. So what was, was like some of the craziest shit you ever did when you were using? Oh, I've done some crazy things. Uh, probably some of the craziest things I've done is I've shot at people. Um, I have um, driven cars, intoxicated, high rates of speed. We'll definitely get into that later or what some of those results were. I've ran around neighborhoods naked, not remembering what I did. I've done, I've done some crazy things for sure. Any of those things uh, ever have any kind of like consequences with your friends where they were like man I like to party but you're at a whole different level yeah I knew something probably wasn't right when people were like hey man you might not need to be drinking like you become a whole different person after you've had a few drinks and um, you know I love you bro but uh, you might have a problem and people were telling me that at an early age and so were you hearing that just amongst your friends Were you starting to see things in your family? What did that look like? So, I mean, I I think I had some defining moments in my high school life that changed my life forever. So, um, I was playing varsity football as a freshman, right? Freshman and sophomore year, I played varsity football. And I had some conflictions in my life. I grow up in a community where I see these gang members over here, and they got these fat cars, they got drug money, they got all the women, they got these chains, and I see them living the life that looks enticing. And then also I have my 
peer friends who are in football and basketball and track, and they're athletes. And we're in the weight room and we're working out and we're doing positive things in our life. And I was conflicted on which path was I to take. Do I want to go hang out with these gang members in my community who look like they're having a lot of fun too? Or do I want to continue going down this path of playing sports and excelling in school? And for me, I made a decision that I wanted that gang lifestyle. I wanted what they had, so I thought. And I see these things on TV like Snoop Dogg and NWA and Ice Cube, and I see all these people glorifying this life, and it looks fun. And they got money, and I want money, and I was caught up in the pomp and circumstance and worship of other things. And I made the decision um, as a sophomore in high school to get into a gang. Talk a little bit or, or whatever you can without exposing anybody or yourself. What did that look like to go from being a star athlete in a primarily white bread school to reintegrating back into the black community and getting into a gang, right? Because as you mentioned, they're both peer groups, but the peer groups have very different mores and folkways, social requirements and, and social cues. How did you make that transition? What did that look like? So at this time now, I was at George Washington High School, um, which is more of a kind of inner city school here in Denver. And, you know, I started showing up to school wearing blue all the time. I started showing up to school drunk all the time. I was getting high at school. I had left the football team. Now I'm failing all my classes. Now I find myself getting into fights on a regular basis at school because you know, at this time, I'm a crip now. There's a lot of bloods at George Washington. So I'm wearing my colors. I'm fighting and defending what I thought was right. And now I find myself getting suspended from school. Now I find myself getting kicked out of school. So here I went from being a star athlete, already receiving college offers to play football, to now gangbanging and fighting and not going to class and using on a regular basis. And it was a total 180 in my life. And then I found myself um, getting shipped off to Job Corps. So did you finish high school? I did finish high school. And when you did, what did you think your path in life was going to be? You know, I was conflicted. I didn't know. I knew I kind of wanted a family. I knew I wanted some things in life. But I wanted the path of least resistance to get them. I didn't want to go the extra mile to do it. How can I get here the fastest and by taking shortcuts and things like that. And what when you say shortcuts, like what sort of things are you talking about? So, you know, getting into the drug game, selling drugs, um, stealing cars, finding other ways to make money. I found myself um, in a high-speed chase with the police at like 18 years old where we had to, where we were in a stolen car. You get caught? We did not get caught. Uh, we drove the car around a corner, hopped out the car, started running down the alley. I went and stayed at a hotel off of Quebec and I-70 and hid out there till the next morning. Uh, and then I went home afterwards. So, yeah, just getting myself into crazy situations um, became a regular thing for me. And so how long did that gang life go on? Uh, it went on deep into my 30s. Um, I met a young lady uh, who ended up becoming my wife at 18. How'd, how'd you meet her? I met her, at, I met her at a job. I was actually working a real job, right? So you had this dual life of I'm in a gang 
And I work a job. And I work a job, right? I'm in a gang and I work a job. That's pretty rare, isn't it? It is. You get a lot of shit from the boys in the gang? No, because, you know, at the end of the day, hey, if I got a job, then that means I have an opportunity to be able to keep reing up on my drugs and reing up on different things. And I can support the gang because I have money and, you know, Gangs are very organized, and there's a structure, and some gangs you have to pay dues and and put money up so we can do different things and purchase guns and things like that. So it's actually more organized than people understand, and it takes money to be able to really be able to flourish in your gang if you want to move up the rank. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're living this dual life. You meet this girl at work, and what happens? She gets pregnant. She gets pregnant, and we get an apartment together, and I kind of slowed down my life a little bit once I knew I was about to be a father. And I started realizing that, hey, I need to prioritize trying to build a life for this child because the last thing I want to be like is my dad. So during this whole time, are you using? I am. And what does your using look like? Is it just drinking and smoking? Are you doing harder drugs? What's up? So at this point, I had realized that marijuana was not for me. I smoke weed. I get very paranoid. I get angry. So I had got away from the marijuana. At this time, I'm only drinking. And it was still only like a weekend deal, right? I work all week. I party hard all weekend, though. Going to clubs, going to bars, hanging out. That was the thing, right? So just drinking at this time. My disease, again, is, was very progressive, and at this point, I really didn't think I had any kind of problem. And so, what happened next? You had a baby, and talk about what happened from there. Yeah, so I had a baby, and then um, I went out with some friends one night celebrating the birth of my baby and just going to go hang out, and we went to a club. Now, we were underage. We were only 18 at the time. No, excuse me, 19 at the time. And we went to a 21 and up club because we had the connect there. So we get in there. We're having a good time. We party all night. We have a ball. We have a good time. And we're leaving the club. And there's a bunch of girls all hanging out with us. And we're like, hey, let's go up here to the IHOP. We're going to get some food. We're going to hang out. Now, mind you, I got a girlfriend at home with a fresh newborn daughter, right? She's waiting on me to come home. And here I am hanging out with my friends and we're about to go hang out with some girls and I'm about to get into some stuff, right? I'm about to get into some trouble and have some fun. And, you know, I was all about that kind of action back then. And um, as we were leaving the club, I'd asked a friend like, hey, bro, um, I drove by myself. Why don't you hop in the car and come ride with me? And I'm drunk, drunk, sloppy drunk. And he's like, yeah, come on, bro, I'll ride with you. So he hops in the car, and we're driving down Alameda at a high rate of speed. This is in January. I want to say it was 2001. And um, we're coming around a corner uh, at a high rate of speed, and my car loses control, and it spins out. And I hit a pole on Alameda, and it ejects me and my friend from the vehicle. And we're both unconscious. And I wake up the next morning to find out from detectives that um, – my friend is dead and that I'm under arrest for reckless driving vehicular homicide. And it, you know, if we're th- speaking about what's going on in the life today, it's exactly like the Henry Rugg situation. Would you say this is your first major consequence from your drinking? Yes. This is my first arrest ever. First police contact ever as far as being arrested. Um, and I was shackled and handcuffed to the bed and... At that time, waves of guilt and shame and resentment came upon me, and I really could not still see my part 
because I was still very good at passing the buck and blaming other things and other people. How did you feel about, I mean, was this guy a close friend of yours or just kind of an acquaintance? He was an associate. He was somebody who kind of ran in our crew. We didn't have the tightest relationship, but he was somebody that I was cool with and I was responsible for with him getting into my vehicle. And how did it feel when you found out he was dead? Man, I was broken. I was broken. I was hurt. And um, I had so much guilt and shame. You know, he had a younger brother. He had family. And uh, it was difficult. It was a really difficult time in my life. Would you say this is when it turned for you or still not yet? Not even close. You were, you were able to overcome that situation, kind of talk yourself out of it. Not even close. Um, even though I pled guilty to the crime, took responsibility for the DUI, uh, the judge gave me um, a pretty short sentence in jail. And when I got out of jail, I was so overcome by guilt and shame of what I did now I needed to find how do I cope with what I've done, and I found that in the bottle. Did your drinking ramp up at that My point? My drinking ramped up at that point. Uh, I went from drinking and partying on the weekends to buying a 6-12 to 12 pack of uh, beer and a couple of shots or a bottle on a daily basis. Now, at this time, now we're moving along. I'm in my 20s. I've been able to build the life, though, as a result of uh, some hard work. Um, I had a career in finance. Uh, I was making good money and I had good credit and me and my wife at the time, now we're married. We had had my son a few years later and we built our, we had a home built up in Green Valley Ranch. This is before Green Valley Ranch uh, looks like the way that it looks now. And we had a, a house built up from the ground up and we had a couple of cars. We had the house with the white picket fence, a couple of kids. We was living. What did your disease tell you at that point? At this point, now I have a lot of responsibility. Now, I'm still a person who can't cope, has no coping skills. Still drinking all the time. Still, though, trying to hang out with my boys, right? I'm going to hang out with my gangsters still and be a family man. So I would go to a white-collar job where I wear a suit and tie every day. I would get off of work. I would spend a few hours with the family. And then I would go out at night and stay out till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning running with the fellas. And I lived like that for a long time. And then before you know it, I'm not coming home at night. And I'm partying and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And at that time, my, ex, my wife started to become fed up. So when would you say you're using... Ramp so I would up. say my using really started to ramp up around the age of 27 to 28 years old. I had found a drug called ecstasy, and ecstasy changed my life. Got on ecstasy, and it allowed me to be up for three, four, and five days at a time, partying, hanging out with my friends, and I love the effects produced by ecstasy. It is just a phenomenal drug at that time for me, and I was loving it. And then a couple of years into my ecstasy run, I found powder cocaine. And how did you get exposed to that? At a party. I'm at a party with my boys. And for us growing up in the black community, people that used cocaine, that was a taboo thing. You would get your ass whipped if they knew you was using cocaine. Even in the gang. Even in the, especially in the gang, if they found out that you was using cocaine, you would get beat up for sure. Because we sell drugs, we don't do them. Except weed. 
accept weed. We was always accepted. So, so what did that look like? Somebody rolled up to you and was like, hey, you want to try this? Or did you walk in on some people using? Or what, what, what did that look like? So I found myself with some of my white-collar friends at a party after work. And in the white in the white collar party area, cocaine is widely accepted, right? It's 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 what they do. And uh, somebody offered it to me, and I, I here we go again, right? I want to feel part of. Right, I right. want to feel accepted. This is one of my managers. I can get a promotion. He does cocaine. Let me try it. And that was it. All it took was that one time, and I loved it. And I loved it. And I could articulate myself in a whole different way that I didn't know was possible, right? And before you know it, I found myself buying cocaine on a regular basis. Through the connect to your boss? Through the connect at the boss, and then I started, you know, finding out that even the people in my circle in the gang life had been secretly doing cocaine, mm-hmm. right? So then I started reaching out to some of our other connects that we had, and I had pretty much access to whatever I wanted. And so... What did the progression look like? I started to hit, started, started the process of hitting the bottom when my wife filed for divorce. Not only did she file for divorce, she left me for the man that went to our church. We were all going to the same church together, and she left me for that man, and my life started to spiral. And I found myself threatening my wife and threatening, well, excuse me, my ex-wife and threatening her new boyfriend. And I just... I was drinking every day. I was showing up to liquor stores at 8, 9 o'clock in the morning drinking, and I found myself becoming more angry and more aggressive and more dangerous. And you were able to keep your job through this? So now I found myself keeping jobs for three to six months at a time, and then I would get fired for no-call, no-shows, and I kind of kept that cycle going for a couple of years. Because you were staying up doing coke and then drinking during the day? Exactly. To take the edge off? Yeah, that was my experience too. So what happened? You weren't able to keep jobs. You're using all the time. Where'd you go from there? So then the the straw that broke the camel's back was when uh, my kid's mom moved out of state with my kids. She took full custody. I was so high and so drunk, I couldn't even show up to court to advocate for myself to get custody rights with my kids. And once my kids left state, I felt like I have nothing else to live for, and I abandoned myself to the gang life. What happened with your addiction at that point? Uh, It just took off. It took off. It became necessary. It became vital to my survival to be able to drink and drug every day and all day. And what were some of the things you did to maintain that? So at this point, I was doing whatever it took. If that meant robbing somebody at gunpoint, if that meant robbing other drug dealers, if that meant uh, selling as many drugs as I could, and it got to the point to where I was just selling drugs to be able to buy drugs, to do drugs. Did you ever get yourself in a situation where you did all the drugs you were supposed to be selling? Yeah, yeah. And then I had to go out and find different ways to get money to pay the connect back so I didn't fuck that up. Right, right. And how long did that go on? That went on for a few years. So now we're in my we're in my 30s now. I haven't had a job in a while. I'm living on the streets. Uh, I'm staying pretty much at long-term motels on Koufax. Or I'm down in this area, in the Park Avenue West area. 
um, selling drugs. I would dress up like I was a homeless person, even though I really was homeless. I didn't have a home, but I still thought I was above people who were sleeping on the streets because I was sleeping in hotel rooms or I was renting out crack addicts homes to live there. I still thought I was above everybody else. And, um, yeah, man, it was, it was a crazy time for me. It was crazy. When did it go from a life of maintenance to spiraling out of control? So by this time I was on felony probation. I had caught about three or four distribution charges and I was on probation, felony probation, with like a five-year prison sentence headed over my head. And um, I wasn't showing up to probation. I wasn't taking my UAs. I wasn't doing anything that I was supposed to be doing to try to keep myself out of jail. And I found myself in jail for long periods of time, uh, begging my mom to put money on my books, my kids writing me letters in jail saying, Dad, how come you keep choosing, choosing the streets over your own kids? And um, that's when I started to realize, like, I can't keep living like this. Would you say that was the first time you realized I got to stop? Even the gang members around me, the people who were around me told me that I had a problem. But all I could see is, no, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. I never tried to stop. I never tried to moderate. All I wanted was more. Whatever you got, I want more of it. And so it never occurred to you till you finally stopped. You didn't have that experience like a number of us do. Damn, the consequences are bad. I'm going to stop. And then I can't stay stopped. And I start and the consequences get worse. And then I try to stop again. You just kept going. I did not think I had a problem with drugs and alcohol until I was 35 years old. And what was the epiphany that made you feel like maybe you had a problem? I woke up one morning after sleeping in a park. And it was something about sleeping in a park that broke me. Not the fact that I wasn't being a father to my kids. Not the fact that I wasn't being a good son to my mother. Not the fact that I hadn't had a job in a couple of years, not the fact that I was in a gang, not the fact that my friend was dead as a result of my drinking, not the fact that I didn't have any kind of spiritual connection to a power greater than myself. I woke up feeling broken after sleeping in a park. It's amazing how each of us have that situation or circumstance regardless of how different it might be, that leaves us with this hole in our heart. What made you finally stop? What did you do? So, when I woke up that morning at the park, I did not go back to the hotel room that was down the street. Um, I walked to a 7-Eleven on 6th Avenue in Havana. All right, And when I got there, I asked somebody, could I use their phone? They said, yes. I called my mom and I said, mom, can you come pick me up? My mom came and picked me up. She took me home to her house. She said, I don't know what you're going to do, but you can't stay up in here. And how old were you at this point? I was 35 years old. Okay. So you can't stay here. Can't stay here. What'd you do? So I knew I was on the run from probation. I just knew that I had a warrant out for my arrest 
and I knew I, need, I was going to go off to prison and have to go do this time, and I was going to figure it out from there. So what happened is my mom took me down to probation the very next day, and I hadn't seen her in like eight months, so I knew I was going to get arrested on site. I walk in, and she says, I want you to look up there at that board. And on that board was my name of an offender that she was about to revoke the probation. She told me, if you want to get sober, I will allow you to go to treatment. And that was when I had my first spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And so you were completely willing at that point to do whatever she told you. At that point, I felt like there's something to this. I'm going to try to see this all the way through. And so what did that entail? What did you have to do? So again, you know, I don't have any insurance. My family doesn't have any money. And I was trying to find resources to be able to get into treatment. And the Salvation Army ARC was an option. It's a free men's program where you can go find treatment, find a safe place, start to understand what recovery is like, and to start to try to find your way. It is not a Malibu Beach Club treatment facility. Um, you're going to show up there. You're going to have to work for them. You're going to have to become disciplined to start to learn how to live again. And so while you're in there, you're doing these things that you're supposed to do. How did you find a connection to recovery? Like you talked about, hey, they're going to teach you how to do recovery. What does that mean? What did that look like? What was your experience? So, you know, when you go into an inpatient treatment facility, they usually have licensed staff, you know, there, whether it's a CAC or whether it's a psychologist or whatever the case may be, you get an opportunity to meet with a licensed individual. And I sat down with the CAC 3 and she looked at me and heard my story and she said, I really can't help you. What I would suggest you do is go check out one of those 12-step meetings that they have uh, at night. And we were required to go to 12-step meetings. And I went to my first 12-step meeting and a man showed up there and he told his story. And his story was nothing like mine's. But what I could relate to was those feelings and emotions that he felt. What are those feelings? Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. That was the connection that I found, and I knew I belonged. And so what did you do once you felt that? What were the next steps that you took? So it's suggested uh, in treatment at the Salvation Army that you get into a 12-step program and you need to find a sponsor. I later on found my first sponsor um, at that same 12-step meeting that I was attending and I got connected into a 12-step fellowship. When you say I got connected to a 12-step fellowship, what does that mean? So that means that after I was done with uh, my inpatient treatment, and mind you, I was there for eight months. That's how messed up and how broken I was. I needed eight months to learn how to brush my teeth, wash my face, right? Take showers, eat breakfast again. I couldn't tell you the last time that I actually ate a real breakfast. So I had to learn how to live again, how to make up a bed, how to broom, how to sweep, how to mop, how to do things that are normal living things. I had to relearn how to do that. And then when I was done doing that, it meant that I had to get into recovery and go to meetings and get a sponsor and start working the 12 steps of recovery. So when you got out of the Sally, where did you live? So I went back to live with my mom at this time. And I'm, she was cool with that? She was cool with it. I had eight months. She had seen changes in me. My mom also had breast cancer at the time. And um, 
I thought I might lose her. And she had to have her breast removed. And um, I was there for her. and I was able to nurse my mom as she was recovering from having her breast removed. And it was an opportunity for us to grow and bond together. And that also meant, though, I had to find a home group. I had to start going to meetings on my own. I was no longer in a safe place. The rubber now meets the road once you need, once you leave treatment. And I needed to find connection. And I found that in a 12-step fellowship. And so what was early recovery like? What did your day-to-day look like for that first year you were out of treatment? Yep. So I was blessed, man. I, uh, you know, I had five felonies and I was able to find another white collar job working back in finance. And my day consisted of waking up every morning, going to work for eight to 10 hours, and then I would go to a meeting. And I was going to seven to 10 meetings a week, every week, every week, every week, every week, every week, every week, meeting with the sponsor. How long did it take you to find your sponsor? Um, it was the same sponsor that I had met in the treatment facility. Okay. You're meeting with him every week, and what's he doing with you? So we're meeting every week, and we're reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am working the 12 steps with him. I am telling him my struggles. I'm telling him how I'm feeling. I'm telling him everything. And it was the first time that I ever had a connection with a man in a positive way who was helping show me how to live one day at a time without alcohol and drugs. Okay, so you're going to meetings, you're working with a sponsor. What are some of the other things that you're doing when you talk about this recovery program? So when we get into recovery, we start talking about, it's not just about my own personal recovery. It's also about, I need to be of service to others. So I found myself getting connected to different committees in my 12-step fellowship and serving on those committees and learning how important service is, not only just to my personal recovery, but what it means to show up for other people and to serve in this altruistic movement that we talk about. And altruism means doing something for somebody else and not expecting anything back in return. Right. And so during this time in early recovery, are there thoughts of using? Are you getting triggered by shit? Did you have fear that you were going to relapse? I think I had a healthy fear around going back out. But I kept hearing people in the rooms of recovery talk about that you would get to a place of neutrality around drugs and alcohol. And you will learn how to be able to play that tape all the way through. And recovery allows you an opportunity to get connected with a power greater than yourself that can do for you that you cannot do for yourself in active addiction. But in that first year, I thought about using all the time, all the time. And when I did, I used the spiritual toolkit laid at my feet, whether I shared about it at a meeting, whether I shared about that with a sponsor or a closed mouth friend. And there was times where people had to come sit with me at home just so I didn't use. And I did whatever it took to not pick up that first one because I realized once I put that first drink or drug in my body, I cannot stop. And how long was it before you felt that you were relieved of the obsession and the craving and the compulsion to want to use again? I think when we talk about the ninth step and by the time I kind of got to the ninth step and we talk about those ninth step promises that we talk about in 12 step recovery, I start to see those truly happening in my life. 
And I started to realize that the obsession to want to drink and drug was being removed. And I just think day by day, I stopped thinking about it. And then before I realized, I started to put together days and months where I had not even thought about drinking or drugging. And how far into your recovery was that? Six months, nine months, a year? I would probably say around around that nine months to a year, uh, that obsession started to be lifted. Yeah, that was my experience too. And so you keep you kept working this program in, in full transparency. I know you outside of this podcast and I see the program that you work. And so you've continued to do that. And what is your life like now? Wow. Wow. Well, I currently have four years sober now, and I have a life that I truly never thought was possible. And um, I'm blessed. You know, I'm blessed. And recovery has given me purpose. I have purpose in my life today. And when I was out there gangbanging and selling drugs and not being a father and all those things, I had no purpose. And the biggest thing that I have in my life today is two things. I have a connection with a power greater than myself that gives me strength, that gives me power, that gives me um, a sense of purpose. And I'm grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. What about some of the other facets of your life, right? You had talked about losing your family, losing your jobs, losing your money, losing all your friends, even the boys in the gang, and, and being hopeless and helpless. What do some of those areas of your life look like now? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I lost my dignity, right, as a result of active addiction. I lost really being a human. I mean, the way we live out there is so much like an animal. And today I have relationships with my kids. I'm actually going to fly out tomorrow to go watch my son's last uh, varsity uh, football game of the season. My daughter now is 20 years old and she's a junior in college. And I'm able to show up for her and support her. I was able to be at her high school graduation. Um, my mother, she trusts me today and she trusts me with everything today. And she believes in me and she, I get to show up for her. I get to show up for my kids. Um, I have this phenomenal job as the director of recovery at 5280 High School where, as we talked about earlier, my life started to spiral out of control in high school. And now God has brought my life back full circle today to where now I'm able to show up for kids who are struggling with self-harm, eating disorders, substance abuse, mental health. All these same things that I dealt with and struggled with, I get to now show up for them at the same time of my life where my life started to spiral out of control. And if that's not a power greater than myself working for me in my life, I don't know what is. Right. Can you imagine that? Coming full circle to help people that are doing exactly what you did when you started down that path. How does that feel? Are there times that you relive some of your experiences through these other kids' experiences? I do, and I think a lot of things that I, that I, put, I pour into them and talk to them about is my own personal experience and the things that I went through, and it's those feelings and emotions that I dealt with as a high school student, you know, 
dealing with your parents and what does that look like and dealing with your teachers and what does that look like and and communicating effectively with your peers and trying to be in personal relationships at a very young age and it's, it's so many different things that our youth have to navigate through today the social media era that we live in now right and all these different things that kids can get trapped in and my experience strength and hope my worst times in my life now have become my biggest resume to help with my kids. Do you feel like they're receptive? Do you feel like you connect? Do they resonate with your story and experiences? They really do. And I'm a big kid at heart. And I, I, you know, I feel like everybody is given certain spiritual gifts in their life. And one of my spiritual gifts is being able to connect with people and bring people in and make them feel comfortable and to be able to love on them and to be able to speak life into them. And it's just a spiritual gift that God has given me. And I just try to use that to the best of my abilities to help serve these kids. That's amazing. You know, one of my experiences in recovery is even once I stop drinking and using, and I don't have the consequences from that, and I rebuild this life, and it's amazing, I still find that it's life, and there are problems and troubles, things that make me sad, angry, afraid, right? Problems, like life is life. How do you cope with those problems, you know, now? What, what are some of those problems? And how do you cope with them differently than the way we used to when we ran to the bottle or the pipe or the, you know, whatever the drug of choice was? So whoever's listening to this, I just want you to understand that just because you get in recovery does not mean that life is going to not stop happening. Life is going to show up. And sometimes it's going to show up in a major way. And... It's all about how do I deal with life today when it does show up, right? And in this book that I read, it talks about certain trials and low spots ahead. And I'm able to overcome those by work and self-sacrifice for others. And today I have a set of tools that allow me to be able to deal with life in a healthy way. And one thing that I've always struggled with in my life is dealing with grief. Um, I probably have buried over 250 people in my lifetime. And this year alone in itself, 2021, I've had to deal with a lot of death and I've been able to grieve in a healthy way by leaning on my circle, that my people in my 12 step fellowship, my friends and my family and God. And I didn't have that ability to do that in active addiction. And I would find ease and comfort in drugs. And today I find ease and comfort in my 12 step program. I find ease and comfort in God. And that allows me to be able to carry me through, through the certain trials and low spots ahead, because life is going to show up. And it's all about how do I react to that today? Yeah, man, I couldn't say that any better. If you could give advice to anybody, whether it's somebody that's using that wants to stop somebody that's using that doesn't even know they should stop, the family or friends of, of people that are using that think they need help, anybody that might be listening that is suffering from addiction or knows someone that's suffering from addiction, what are some pieces of advice you would give to those people? So let me start with the people who have people in their life who are struggling with addiction. 
And uh, the biggest thing that I had to understand was what did my mom go through when I was out there? Because when we're out there, we don't really know what our loved ones are going through. And I would tell you to have patience, to have understanding, to set boundaries, to have walls up, uh, to pray for them while they're out there. And you have to understand that every addict or alcoholic has to find their own bottom. And for some people, that bottom is pretty low. It's pretty far down. And they're going to do some absurd, incredible, and tragic things. And sometimes you have to love them from a distance until they find themselves ready to do something different. And that's going to take a lot of patience, a lot of love, and a lot of grace. And, um, you know, all you can do is just be ready to be able to show up for them when they find their time. And if you're a person who's listening and you want to, you may thinking about recovery, or maybe that's an option for you. The first thing I'm going to tell you to do is you cannot do this for anybody but yourself. You can't do it for mama. You can't do it for the kids, mom. You can't do it for the kids. You got to want this for yourself. You're going to have to be willing to go to any lengths. And I also want you to understand there is a lot of different ways to find recovery. 12-step recovery might not be for you. You may have to find a different path. But you're going to have to figure out what that looks like for you. And whatever you do, you're going to have to be willing to put in the work, take responsibility for your actions, right? And be willing to do whatever it takes, whatever that looks like for you. So what I hear you saying is, if you're a loved one, don't enable. If you're looking to get into recovery, don't do it for a loved one. Do it for yourself. It just doesn't work. It does not work if you get into this for somebody else because somebody else is encouraging you or telling you that you got a problem. The first thing you got to understand is you have to believe down to your core, to your innermost self, deep down, that you're one of us. Because if you don't believe you're an alcoholic or an addict, you're fucked anyway, okay? And the real truth is, is that you have to understand that you're a pickle. And guess what? Once you become a pickle, you're never going back to being a cucumber period. Any last things you want to say? Yeah, I just want to, I hope somebody finds some hope in this today. When I came into the rooms of recovery, I needed some hope. And there was a lot of men and women that gave me some hope that I too could recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And no matter what I had been through or no matter what I had done, that I too could become free. Free from what you ask? Free from the bondage of self. I want to be free from the bondage of self and I want to break those chains of addiction and just whatever you've been through, no matter how bad it's been, I want you to know that there's hope out there, right? And that you don't have to continue to keep living like this. And there was people who understand who have been through what you have been through and they know the way out. It's like if I'm in a hole somewhere, right? There is people out there who will jump in that hole with you and help you find your way out of that hole. And that is such a blessing. And just know that no matter what you've been through, the consequences, any of that stuff, we're here. We're here and we're free. Keith, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your story with us and talk about your road through addiction to recovery and what your life is like now. I thank you guys for having me, man. This is such a blessing. And the recovery community is big time here in Colorado. And uh, we just want to be able to show up for people and let them know 
that there is hope. Thank you again for listening to Grit, Real Stories of Recovery. And thank you again, Keith Hayes, Director of Recovery at 5280 High School for sharing your story. I love you, brother. Take care. Love you too. Thanks, Paul. This podcast is being brought to you by Step Denver Men's Residential Addiction Recovery Program. Step Denver gives men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome the consequences of addiction through a program based on sobriety, work, accountability, and community. For more information, visit stepdenver.org.